invite you to please turn in your copy of Scripture to our text this morning, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. There we read. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. We are in a series through the letter to the Hebrews, and we've come this morning to this section that explains to us the importance of Christ's session at the right hand of the Father in heaven, that the Lord Jesus, at this very moment, is with the Father in glory. And we know that throughout his earthly ministry, the Lord Jesus told his disciples that he would not always be with them physically as he had been for those three years, that he would soon be leaving them in order to go to the Father. And we know from the Gospels that his disciples didn't like that. They weren't enthusiastic about him leaving them. And yet Jesus comforted them and told them that it is for your good, it is for your benefit that I am going away. And so I want us to consider this morning where Jesus is and why that is good for you and for me, his disciples. We see first in our text that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. We read there in verses 1 through 2. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, and the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Well, what we see in verse 1 is that the inspired author describes the posture of the Lord Jesus. He describes the posture of the Lord Jesus as being seated, that he is not on earth, but he is in heaven, and there in heaven he is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. And when we think about Christ's session there, Christ being seated, we need to understand that this isn't the only way that Jesus' heavenly activity is described in the New Testament. Uh, we read, for example, in Acts chapter 7, uh, where the Lord Jesus is described as standing. Many of us are familiar with the story of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, 
Yes, Stephen was a man who loved Jesus and who said as he was dying, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen, as he was dying, as he was being martyred, saw the Lord Jesus standing, ready to act on his behalf. And in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, the Lord Jesus is described as walking, walking among the seven churches. And then in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, he is pictured as riding into battle on a white horse. He is bringing judgment to his enemies and victory to his people. Such a glorious image of the last battle and the sure victory that Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, will have over all his and our enemies. So he's described in many ways as standing, as walking, as riding into battle. But we see also in the New Testament that it primarily describes the heavenly activity of the Lord Jesus as his being seated, as his session at the right hand of the Father. And that's how he is described in our text for this morning. And I want to ask, why is that important? Why is his session at the right hand of the Father an important thing for us to consider and to understand this morning? Well, it's because, loved ones, his being seated demonstrates that his work of redemption is finished, that his work of redemption is complete. You know, today in our society, we have a technological society, a very advanced society. And so today, you know, we don't equate sitting down uh, with completed work. In fact, most of us have jobs that require us to sit for a long time. We sit at a desk, at a counter, or at a workbench, and uh, we sit so much during the day, in fact, during work, that there are timers and apps that will remind you to stand up on occasion uh, because it's not good for you to sit so long. So we don't often equate uh, sitting down with finished work because so much of our work requires uh, sitting. But, you know, this wasn't the case for thousands of years. Thousands of years in which most work involved standing, very active work, uh, very grueling work. And so at the end of a long work day like that, at the end of a day of completed work, how would one rest? Rest by getting to finally sit down. And so this is what our text is primarily pointing to when it describes Christ's posture, that he is seated. That after he finished his work of redemption, his work of obeying the law perfectly for his people, and then bearing God's wrath for their sin in his death on the cross, his work of salvation was done. And so what did he do? He sat down. See, there's no more sin for him to atone for. There is no more debts for him to repay. You know, this is exactly... What he said in his dying words on the cross, John 19, verse 30, the three wonderful words, it is finished. And so this is the context of Hebrews that we read these words in, the, the seated, finished work 
of Christ. And it was especially important for the Christian Hebrews to understand this because for them, in that first century, it was a direct contrast. It was a complete difference between what Christ is pictured as in heaven, they're seated in his completed work, complete contrast to the ongoing activity of the older covenant priesthood in the temple courts in Jerusalem. I want you to remember again this morning that the letter to the Hebrews was written before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. And so that means that the priesthood in the temple was still doing what it had always done according to those older covenant regulations. The priesthood there in Jerusalem in the temple was still going through those daily rituals of sacrifice and of offerings. Those daily morning and evening sacrifices were still being made and the Day of Atonement was still being observed year after year, being officiated over by the high priests. And those priests, what were they doing? They were standing because their work was never complete. It was ongoing, day after day, year after year. They could not sit because their work was never done. But Christ, we see in contrast, our great high priest is sitting. Why? Because his work is finished. He is the one who offered not a substitute, but who offered himself as a sacrifice to God and thereby forever completed the work of redemption. We read about his posture and his finished work so clearly in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 through 14. And these are key verses to understand why the Lord Jesus sits in contrast to the Levitical priesthood at this time. We read in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so, Christian friends, we have a Savior. We have a Savior who is living, who is active in our lives, a Savior who, as we've noted throughout the epistle to the Hebrews, ever lives to intercede for us. But we have a Savior whose primary posture is described as being seated. And that, loved ones, is a good thing. That is a very good thing because you and I can rest in the assurance that his work on our behalf is finished. Now we, as a result, don't need to seek another earthly priest. We don't need to find someone on earth that might atone for our sins through some ritual. We don't have to work to merit salvation. We don't have to work to try to do enough good for God to forgive us, to do enough good to outweigh all the bad, which we know is impossible. It's impossible because we're guilty by association. We're guilty because of Adam. 
We're guilty because of every wrong motive, thought, action, word that we've ever had. We're guilty because of not doing the good that we should be doing. We're guilty in every sense. And so what hope is there? There is only one hope, and that is to trust in Christ who offered himself once for all to bring us to God. There's only one hope, and that is to trust in Christ who is now seated because his work is finished. And we see in our text this morning that not only is the posture of the Lord Jesus described, but his location. His location is also described to us by divine revelation. We see there that he is seated, verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 8, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That his position is at the right hand of God. Now this description of his being at the right hand of the Father reveals the present authority of the Lord Jesus. That position, that place, is the place of power. It's the place of honor. It's the place of rule. It's the place of authority. This is what we see in Psalm 110, a psalm that we sang this morning that we've referred to often as we've gone through the letter to the Hebrews. It's the psalm that describes how God sets the Messiah at his right hand and that his Messiah would be both a king and a priest. It's in this psalm, in Psalm 110, that God reveals more fully to King David his plan of salvation. As God the Father appoints Christ as our eternal high priest who would fulfill all the covenant requirements for his people, that covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that covenant in which the Son undertook to finish all the work of salvation. And the Messiah in that psalm is described as being at God's right hand, as both a king and as a priest. As a king, there he is ruling and reigning to set all enemies under his feet. We read in Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And as a priest, he is there to save his people from their sins. We know a priest uh, is not from the Levitical order as described in Psalm 110. He would not come from the line of Aaron. Um, the line of Aaron that there in the temple looked busy but could not fully and finally take away sins, but he would be a priest from the order of Melchizedek, a superior priesthood. Verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so, loved ones, the Lord Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God. And the good news of the gospel is that if you trust in him by faith, you can say this morning, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, and that's another plug for our upcoming series in 2018, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, we have our flesh, our representative, our mediator, our friend, our brother, there in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. Now you and I have a Savior who is seated because of his finished work of redemption 
And who is not only seated, but he is seated in a place of authority, of a place of ultimate power and of glory. And from there he rules and he reigns the whole universe. See, when we think about the Lord Jesus, we see that his work of redemption for us shows us how much he loves us and how much he cares. And so we know, as a result of his loving intercession, that from that place of glory, he continues to intercede for our good. He is our king who rules and reigns over us and who subdues all his and our enemies. And this is great news, loved ones, because you know when you think, and I think of, of a king, it can be a terrifying thought. You know, we hear of good kings throughout history, but we've also heard about very wicked kings throughout history. Kings that have enslaved, kings that have taken advantage, kings that have used their power for evil. But we know, loved ones, that we have a king who loves us and who rules for our good. Why do we know this? Why can we be sure of this? Because he is the same king who first died for us. The Westminster Larger Catechism explains it this way so clearly. It says, Christ is exalted in his sitting at the right hand of God in that as God-man, he is advanced to the highest favor with God the Father, with all fullness of joy, glory, and power over all things in heaven and earth, and does gather and defend his church and subdue their enemies, furnishes his ministers and people with gifts and graces, and makes intercession for them. You know, the Hebrews, in the first century, those Christians, they needed to hear this. Remember that they were being persecuted because of their confession, their faith in Christ. They were being shamed. They were being rejected by uh, their family members and friends because they had left Judaism and converted to Christ. And so they were living in fear. They were contemplating leaving Christ to return to what was safe, to what was comfortable, to what was familiar. And they were feeling hopeless because of the fear that they were experiencing. So the question then for them, is all hope lost? The answer of Hebrews is no. Why not? Well, because we have a king and a priest who is seated at God's right hand, there in the place of glory and power over all things in heaven and earth, one who does gather and defend his church and subdue their enemies. And so, friends, because of this reality, this truth, you and I can and must live with greater boldness, greater confidence than we often do. That we have a king who not only loves us and gave himself for us, but who continues to rule and reign over all his and our enemies, and who has promised to bring us into his full and final kingdom. Living this way, understanding these truths, will give us greater boldness and confidence. Confidence that so many of us desperately need. There's a recent article in the New York Times that reported on the growing number of, prog of uh, programs for teenagers that suffer from um, 
anxious dis disorders. Uh, and noted that over the last decade, anxiety has overtaken depression as the most common reason college students seek counseling services. Uh, it reported that in 2011, 50% of college students uh, reported feeling overwhelming anxiety. That was in 2011, 50%. And then in 2016, that number jumped up to 62%. And it also reported that in the last 10 years, hospital admissions for suicidal teenagers has doubled. And Christians are among those contributing to these numbers. And so, loved ones, we all need to hear, all of us, again and again, that we have now, at this very moment, a king and a priest who is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. One who says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. And when you and I hear this, we have to hear it as a command from our king and our priest, from the Lord Jesus, as he spoke these words on the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples, and he speaks them to us today. We have to remember the source of this command of do not be anxious. You know, if somebody was coming up to me on the street, just a stranger, and said, do not be anxious, I would, I'd get annoyed. What authority do you have to tell me not to be anxious? Do you have all the power in the universe to help me out of my problems? Do you, do you have some assurance to give me? You have no reason to say that to me. But the Lord Jesus, when he says it, he says it with the heart of a priest, with the power of a king. He says it to you and to me, do not be anxious. And he says it as the only person in the universe, loved ones, who can say it with any kind of authority and assurance. This is why the Lord Jesus speaks to his fearful disciples there when he gives the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. And he phrases the Great Commission by beginning first and saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is the ground of now sending out his apostles, sending them out into territory that is overrun by Romans and ruled by uh, uh, the Roman government, by a very powerful army that is ruled in many places by uh, Jewish authorities. He says, go. Why? Because I am the ultimate authority in this universe and not those. In fact, those governments, those rulers, work for Jesus. And loved ones, it's this authority, his session at God's right hand, that must shape our lives day in and day out. The decisions we make, the confidence we feel, the boldness, the joy, all of that must be framed by his love for us and his assurance that he is sovereign over all his and our enemies. And thirdly, we see not just his posture, his place, but we see that it is there in heaven, that Christ is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, as we see in verse 1. And when we think about the importance of this phrase that he is in heaven, we have to remember that so much of Christ's priestly work is performed 
even now in his intercession, and we don't see it. It's invisible to us. We believe it by faith. And so it was hard, especially for the original audience of Hebrews, to believe that his priesthood is better than that of the older covenants. Again, they could go to Jerusalem. They could see that beautiful temple. They could see the high priest in all of his vestments. They could see those sacrifices going on. It was visible. It was tangible. They could look upon it with their eyes. But the ministry of the Lord Jesus as our king and our priest takes place in heaven, in the heavenly realms. And we believe that it is going on by faith as it is revealed to us in the word and it is applied to us by the Holy Spirit. But it's invisible. We do not see it. And this is one reason why so many of the Hebrews wanted to return to the older covenant rituals, rituals that they could see and smell and touch. The writer to the Hebrews, loved ones, demonstrates that it's actually better that Jesus ministers in heaven and not on earth because the Lord Jesus is ministering in the reality that the tabernacle and the temple in Jerusalem merely pointed toward. You'll remember in our reading from this morning from Exodus chapter 25, as the Lord reveals to Moses how the tabernacle is going to and must be built, he gives those very precise instructions. But there's two times in that chapter where the Lord tells Moses that the tabernacle and all of the things inside the tabernacle must be built according to these precise specifications. We see in verse 9, the Lord says, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so shall you make it. And then verse 40, like a bookend, and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain that Moses was given a vision of that heavenly Jerusalem of that heavenly tabernacle, and the earthly tabernacle was merely to be a representation of that greater reality. We see this in the sacraments, don't we, loved ones? That the sacraments are signs and seals that point to something greater. The water of baptism points to the blood of Christ that washes away our sin. It is an earthly, physical demonstration of a greater spiritual reality. The bread and the wine in the Lord's Supper point to the greater reality of Christ's propitiation for you and for me. We don't worship the water. We don't worship the bread and the wine because we know that they are signs and seals that point to something greater. And the writer of Hebrews is explaining that the tabernacle was like that, that as it was revealed to Moses, what Moses saw was something far greater than was ever erected there in the wilderness in the tabernacle. And so, loved ones, it is better that we have a priest who is not on earth, but who is in heaven, because he now carries on a much more excellent ministry, because his ministry is going on in the reality, in the heavenly realms. He is not laboring in a temple or in a tabernacle that is made by human hands. And if you look in the text this morning in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, you'll see that 
The way that the writer of Hebrews describes that, that tabernacle is that it was the dwelling place of God amongst his people, but it was merely a copy and a shadow. Those two words are used to describe uh, the, the, t- the tabernacle. And it's also uh, described as a pattern that the Lord gave Moses. When you think about a copy, the idea behind this word is uh, that it's a drawing or a plan of a building that represents the building, but is not the reality. It's kind of like blueprints. It's something that explains very clearly what the reality looks like, but none of us are satisfied with blueprints. We want the real thing. We want the house. And secondly, we see that it's described as a shadow. And we know that in order to have a shadow, you have to have a substance to cast that shadow. And that greater substance is the heavenly reality, and the tabernacle was merely a shadow of something much greater than it, something that was more real than it. So loved ones, there was a time where that tabernacle was good, as God used it in the older covenant to dwell among his people. But the writer of Hebrews says that that has now expired. Why? Because the true tabernacle has come. Christ has come, and he has tabernacled among his people, as we read in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us. And John says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we know that Christ was also the true temple. We read in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, where the Lord Jesus tells the crowd, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And he also says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The shadow, the copy, has given away to the reality. And so, Now we need to put away the copy and the shadow because the reality has come. And so, loved ones, we have a priest who reigns at God's right hand, who is seated there in heaven. A priest who assures us that we ought not to let our hearts be troubled. We are to believe in God, believe also in him. Why? We read in John chapter 14, verse 2, the words of the Lord Jesus, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, the assurance that we receive from the Lord Jesus, who is now in heaven, says, I will come again and will take you to be with myself, that where I am, you may be also. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who rules and reigns with you in unity with the Holy Spirit. We thank you for his finished work and his ongoing work of intercession for and the protection of his church. We thank you that we can say today by faith that we have such a great high priest who is seated at your right hand in heaven. And where he is, we will soon be also.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.